Are there any such things as accidents, uh, Michael? I don't know. <laughs> no, it is a joy to be here, and it is a joy to uh, see uh, Michael in ministry here, and, and for us as a seminary, we are always uh, thrilled to hear of the uh, ministries of our graduates, and, and to have the opportunity to visit uh, Michael here and see the ministry that he's involved in is something particularly encouraging for me, having had Michael in a class and uh, it, you have been an encouragement to me, just as I've observed you and uh, the time that we had over the weekend. And, and so uh, I'll bring a wonderful report back to our faculty. And it was great to uh, spend the weekend with the men and, and have the time in the letter of First John together, studying the holiness of God, that God is light, and looking at the implications of that and how that light then is to reflect in those who are called to be sons of God. Well, this morning in the time that we have, I want to open the text out of Colossians chapter 2. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, and we will look specifically at verses 13 to 15. But before we get into that, I want to establish some of the context to help us understand why the Apostle Paul writes the words that he does in verses 13 to 15. Paul had not established this church in the city of Colossae. He had traveled by the region, but there's no indication that he had ever preached in that city. In fact, Paul is pretty clear in chapter 1, verse 7, that it was a man by the name of Epaphras who brought the gospel to Colossae. From what we can tell, Epaphras was a resident of that city and had come under Paul's ministry in the nearby city of Ephesus. About 120 miles further to the west is that city of Ephesus. Paul had spent three years, we have that described for us in Acts chapter 19. And we read there, according to Luke, that Paul, having spent three years there in Ephesus, trained up men for ministry and the gospel was then taking, taken throughout the Roman province of Asia Minor, and Colossae was one of those cities. So it's likely that this man, Epaphras, who's called a, a beloved fellow slave, a faithful servant of Christ, is the one who was trained by Paul in Ephesus and then comes back to his hometown and preaches the gospel, and God is pleased to establish a church in that city. Then, years later, when Paul is in prison in Rome under house arrest, Epaphras, the pastor of the church in Colossae, brings a report to Paul there in prison as to the state of the church. Verse 8 of chapter 1 says, He has informed us of your love in the Spirit, he writes to the Colossians. So Epaphras was the one to, to bring an update to Paul there under house arrest in Rome. And also to explain to Paul the threats that were plaguing the church at the time. And so Paul, having heard that report, writes this letter to the Colossians and sends it back with Epaphras himself. And if you spent any time in this letter, you know that the focus of Paul, as he responds to the report from Epaphras, the focus of Paul is to extol Jesus Christ. That is the, the need that the church had in light of the threats 
to its integrity. The threats that had come came from the outside and, and they, those threats came from a mixed source of, of teachings. The effort was made by these false teachers to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and the teaching about the person of Christ and commingle that information, those teachings with philosophy, with the traditions of men and even pagan, uh, pagan mysticism. And so Paul writes to the church to give them a defense, to give this church a defense against the attacks that were being made from the outside so as to strengthen that church and increase its understanding of Jesus Christ and its affection for Him and all that He has accomplished. The heart of this letter begins in chapter 2, verse 8, and it'll go all the way to chapter 3, verse 4. This is really Paul's defense. This is the apologetic that the Apostle Paul leaves to this little congregation. It would not have been big there in Colossae. He leaves this precious truth, these assertions he makes in chapter 2, verses 8, all the way to 3, verse 4, where he focuses on this preeminence of Jesus Christ. And look for just a moment at this key exhortation that Paul gives in the beginning of the heart of this letter, 2 verse 8. This is what it comes down to for Paul, having heard the message from Epaphras. He writes this, see to it, be vigilant, he says, so that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. This is the threat that marked the Colossian church. It's the threat that marks all churches of all time. It's this threat of taking the teachings of Christ and syncretizing them with other things, whether that be the, 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 the high ideas of philosophy, whether that be the traditions of men, whether that be the elementary principles of the world, whether it be legalism, whether it be paganism, whether it be education, the opinions of men. It's always been a threat to the church. And so when we read that exhortation, we realize that this is also an exhortation for us. See to it. Be vigilant. That no one takes you captive. That no one takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And then beginning there, he buttresses that exhortation with a lengthy paragraph that runs all the way to, to the end of verse 15, which includes six very important assertions that Paul makes about Christ. We're not going to consider all of them. We're going to focus on verses 13 to 15, but I want to read from verses 9 to 15 this entire paragraph that flows from that exhortation in verse 8. Paul continues, for in Him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you are also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God 
who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your heart, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Altogether, there are six assertions that Paul makes about what God has done for us in Christ. In verse 10, he says, in Christ, you have been made complete. You, believers, have been made complete. In verse 11, he says, in Him, that is in Christ, you are also circumcised. And then verse 12, and in Him, that is in Christ, you are also raised up. And a tiny grammatical shift occurs between verse 12 and 13. And in verses 13, 14, and 15, he gives another set of three assertions. Three facts about what God has done for us in Christ. And it is these three that I want to look at. The three that we find in verses 13, 14, and 15. As we study these instructions, these assertions that Paul makes about what God has done for us in Christ. These instructions that help us that protect us from becoming captives to the errant views of Christ and salvation, I want us to note this morning three emphases about the work of God in Christ that will ensure that we remain captive to Him. And to help us learn these three assertions, these three emphases, I want to phrase it in terms of questions. And these are the three questions that we'll answer, or that Paul will answer, in these verses. Number one, what did God do to us? That'll be found in in verse 13 in the first half of verse 14. What did God do to us? Number two, what did God do to our guilt? It'll be found in the second half of verse 14. And then number three, what did God do to our enemies? That'll be found in verse 15. Each of these questions will be answered by a key verb, an action of what God has done for us in Christ. And each one of these key verbs will be qualified with additional information. So we want to walk our way through these three verses, answering these three questions. And it leads us to the first, which is the most extensive question and answer that Paul gives us. The question we ask is, What did God do to us? What did God do to us who are in Christ? Remember, Paul writes to the saints of Colossae. He is addressing, not unbelievers, but he's addressing believers. And he wants these believers to be strong and ready and equipped to remain steadfast against the threats of all the ideologies that are constantly attacking the church. And so the first question that Paul answers is this, what did God do to us? To the saints. He wants them to reflect and remember what God has done in Christ. What did God do to us, Paul? Asks and then he answers. Notice again verses 13 to the middle of verse 14. He says this. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. 
together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. So here's the question, saint. Here's the question, believer in Jesus Christ. What did God do for us? And the answer is this. He made us alive. He made us alive. And so if we could summarize that answer with just one word, the best word would be this. It's an old one. It's the word vivification. It comes from the verb to vivify. You've heard of the, the, the adjective vivid, right? A vivid analogy is a lively analogy. And to vivify means to make alive. And so in one word, as Paul explains what God has done for us, he uses this concept of vivification. He has made us alive. And, and Paul spends most of his time now on this particular answer, this first one in this particular section. He made us alive. Now, how does he explain that God has made us alive? He, he says this, he says, and you being dead... He emphasizes the you here. He actually, in the original, repeats it twice. He says, and you being dead, He made you alive together with Him. He's emphasizing this by repeating the identity two times. And why does He emphasize this? And you, He made alive you. Why does He emphasize this? Because of of what follows then and and what surrounds that, that key verb. He says, you are dead. He says, he says, you're dead. You being dead. And this is not referring to physical death. It's, of course, referring to spiritual separation. Spiritual death. It's not that they simply died. He says, you were dead. Speaking of a state of existence. He doesn't describe it as a sickness. He describes it as a state of being. A state of deadness. And he is referring by this to... What happened as a result of Adam's original sin? We go back to Genesis 3, right? We read of what happened there, and Paul summarizes that elsewhere in his writings in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where he says this, Death entered through sin and spread to all men, because all sinned. In Adam, all sinned. And God had promised that the one who sins shall die. This description of death describes a state of unresponsiveness. It describes a state of inability. And this inability is further defined by two things. Why were these saints at Colossae? And why are we the saints today? Why were we dead? Paul explains it this way. Two things. First of all, we were dead with respect to our transgressions. Notice the first part of verse 13. You were dead in or by reason of your transgressions. See, he puts it in the plural to refer to all the individual acts that we do, that we have done as unbelievers. There's no one righteous. No, not even one, Paul says in Romans 3. The word transgression here refers to that of making a false step. Stepping off the path. Stepping off the standard. It's a violation of God's Holy law. 
And like I said, it's in the plural here with respect to your transgressions because it emphasizes quantity and this concrete abundance. There is not just one tiny error in our lives. No, there is an abundance of transgressions. Moreover, he describes it as related to the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, Paul is using an analogy here. He's departing from the literal use of this term. Of course, elsewhere, the the Gentiles are described as the uncircumcision because they were not part of the covenant people of the Old Testament, the Jewish people who were marked by physical circumcision. No, Paul is using that term in a spiritual sense and referring to all of them that way. You were dead with respect to the uncircumcision of your spiritual nature. It's a reference here to your nature. You see, you're dead not only with respect to all the transgressions that you have committed, all those violations of the Ten Commandments, all of the violations of all the other commandments that God gives, you are dead with respect to what you had actually committed, all those times that you had stepped off the mark. But Paul says you're also dead with respect to your nature. As those in Adam, you were dead Because of your sin nature. And what Paul is referring to there with that analogy of uncircumcision is that you're just born that way. You are not merely sinners because you sin, but you sin because you're a sinner. It is our nature to sin. Martin Luther summarized this well when he said this. He says, man does not do evil against his will. Under pressure. As though he were taken by the scruff of his neck and dragged down into it like a thief being dragged off against his will into punishment. Man does evil spontaneously and voluntarily. And this willingness or volition is something which he cannot in his own strength eliminate. That describes all of us before what God had done for us in making us alive. And now notice that verb. It's a very intensive, powerful verb. It's a compound verb. Paul adds a whole bunch of words together. The word to make, the word life, and with. He adds it all together in a new word that he coins right there to emphasize what God has done. God has made us alive together with. It emphasizes a completed act. He's not saying God is making you alive as if to suggest this is a process and the outcome is unsure. Instead, he states it as a completed act. He made you alive, period. It's been done. It's what he has done for you, saints of Colossae, and it's what's been done for us, the saints of today. And he uses this word together with, he uses it to emphasize union, union with Christ. This making alive has not happened apart from Christ. It's not that God makes people alive apart from any understanding or reference or message of Christ. No, it's specifically stated and emphatically so that God did this by uniting us with the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 4 says that in Christ was life and this life was the light of men. And so naturally it It it, it makes sense that for God to take these dead sinners who are are dead because of the sins they've committed and dead because of their sinful nature in Adam, it makes sense that because Christ is the one who has life, that God makes the 
sinner alive by uniting him with this awesome source of life and power. These two great problems that mark us, our transgressions and our nature, are dealt with by this great act of God. Paul doesn't stop there in that particular answer. He, he unfolds this even more in, this, in, in response to this question of what God has done for us. How does he do this? Notice the two important descriptions that follow with, with this particular answer. He made us alive. He's, he's focusing on vivification. Notice, first of all, at the, at the second half of verse 13, he describes how God has made us alive with these words, he says, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He had used the, the, the word transgressions already at the beginning of the verse to say we were dead. So there's a problem. Something has to be done with the transgressions. God cannot simply close his eyes on them. The moment he does, he ceases to be a holy and righteous and just God. Something has to be done with the transgressions. And, 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 and Paul says he's forgiven us the transgressions. And this is not the normal word for forgiveness. Or the normal verb for forgive. This is a verb that Paul uses here. Which has an added emphasis on grace. He graced us with forgiveness you could say. He has shown himself grace, gracious by forgiving, by pardoning, by removing our transgressions. And notice, he says, Paul does, and this is very key, he describes this forgiveness as extending to, note that little tiny word there which is so precious, all, all of our transgressions. Not just the light ones, not just the simple ones, not just those committed in a certain age or a time of life, but all of them without exception. Not only that, however, because even that, you might ask, well, how does, how does God forgive? Because again, He, he might remove it from us, the, these, the stain, the guilt of the transgressions, but where does it go? How can God do that and remain just? Well, that's found in the second description of how he's made us alive. Notice the beginning of verse 14. He says this, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. There's so much theology wrapped up in, in, in that clause there at the beginning of verse 14. He, he describes the means by which the forgiveness can come. The idea there of canceling out comes from a verb which means to wipe out or to cause to disappear by wiping. Now this was a very common idea in those days that when they would write things down on a piece of, of papyrus or even a piece of parchment, they would reuse that paper. And how would they do that? They would take a potsherd and scrape at the fibers. Scrape at the parchment to remove the ink. And they would essentially scrape it all clean again. And by that practice, by that procedure, they could, they could then be left with a clean document. Whatever had been written there would be removed. Paul, or, or, Paul takes that, that idea and uses it here. Having canceled out 
the certificate of debt. The same idea is found in Revelation 21 verse 4 when it refers to God wiping away all our tears. And He's just going to remove them completely in that eternal state. Has the idea of to remove so as to leave no trace. And what was wiped away? Notice how Paul describes it. He calls it a certificate of debt. A certificate of debt. Well, in those days, as is today, debts were recorded on papyrus. It was an IOU, and so this would be written down what a person owed. It would be written down with ink, and there would be signatures attached or a seal attached to that, and that would stand as the certificate of debt, and it could not be absolved until the one who was owed the debt would finally cancel that out and add his cross over and signature and, and, and markings to indicate that the debt had been satisfied. And Paul says, listen, saint, you had a certificate of debt that was written against you. Notice he goes on and says, against us. The certificate of debt against us. It, it verifies that we were the debtors. We were the ones who, who had these, these letters, these IOUs. And we could never pay them. In fact, Paul says that they consisted of decrees. Notice verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees. Well, what does that mean? These aren't financial decrees as if we owe some kind of monetary amount that we can simply show up with money and have our debts somehow forgiven. It was actually kind of an idea that, that was prevalent in the Middle, middle Ages when they thought they could purchase their way out of purgatory by, by bringing to the church alms. But this isn't, this isn't a, a certificate of debt that can be paid off by money. Not at all. When Paul refers to this certificate of debt that consists of decrees, it's a reference to all the, all the laws of God. These are the decrees. The revealed moral will of God. Paul reminds the Colossians of all the Old Testament laws. This is the standard of holiness. And if you're to be acceptable in God's eyes as a holy and righteous God who does not accept evil and wickedness, then you must live this way. And every time you fail, that same law stands as your judge. It's a decree against you. That which, that which described the holiness of God now becomes a decree against you. And that's why Paul can say, that's why Paul can say it was hostile to us. It's not that the law was evil, not at all. Paul says, says elsewhere, the law is holy and righteous and good. The law was the expression of God's holiness, his purity, moral purity. So the law is not evil, but when the law is sinned against, that same law pronounces the judgment against us. For example, Deuteronomy 27 verse 26. Cursed is he who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them. Cursed. Paul says, God made you alive by taking this condemnation, this IOU with all its obligations and consequences, all its penalty clauses, 
and he wiped it clean. All the record of transgressions, he wiped it clean. He obliterated the evidence. It's as if for those saints, God went into the the bank, the vault, that contained individual boxes for every one of humanity who has ever lived. And he went to those who were the saints of Colossae, And he reached into that bank, that vault, that box, pulled out the certificate that described all the ways, every single one of the ways in which those saints at Colossae had sinned against a holy God. And God takes a potsherd and he scrapes it clean. This relates not only to the Colossian saints, it relates to those who are in Christ today as well. That has happened to you. God has gone into that vault and He's taken your certificate of debt. Think of it. And think of how long that certificate of debt was. Every single transaction of transgression listed. Every single one. And you think, boy, that must be a very big box from which that certificate is taken because that certificate is long. At the moment of your conversion, at the moment of your regeneration, this is what God has done when He made you alive. He did so by taking that IOU and He Himself erased it. God made us alive. And that leads to the second question. Well, what did God do with the guilt? What did God do with our guilt? Again, still our answer has not been fully found that yes, we were sinners by action and by nature, both by choice and by compulsion of being those who are the descendants of Adam. And God, in making us alive, has forgiven the debt and He scraped it from our our IOU, but how could this be? What has God done to that guilt? And that's the second question that Paul will answer here, and it's found in the second half of verse 14. What did God do to our guilt? Now look at the text there, the second half. Verse 14, and this is powerful. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In one word, you can summarize this answer as follows. Imputation. Imputation. To impute. That's what's in view in this second assertion that Paul makes here. This this assertion that he makes in the second half of verse 14 He has taken it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. Well, what's the it? What's the it that he is referring to there in verse 14? What is the it that he has taken out of the way? Well, it's referring again back to that that certificate, that IOU that contained all of our debts and all of its consequences. And, And Paul is piling up the analogies here to make a point. And in this particular point, he's explaining that it's not just that God went in there willy-nilly and arbitrarily just decided to erase some of the sins of some of the people. No, there's something more to it, Paul says, and that's what we get to in verse 14 and the idea of imputation. How can a holy God do that? How can He take that pot shirt and remove all of those transgressions and their consequences and remain holy? There must be a payment. Payment is due. So where is that payment to be found? Paul answers that here with the imputation. 
He has taken it out of the way. He's essentially taken it out of that vault. Our certificates, the saints at Colossae, their certificates. He's removed it from the vault to leave the box of IOUs completely empty. And he nailed it to the cross. The imagery here is very vivid. God removed the document of all the IOUs, all the spiritual debts that we have ever incurred and that we will ever incur. And he nailed it. He affixed it to the cross. And this is very important. He didn't just wipe the slate clean, turning a blind eye to the transgressions committed. If he did, he would no longer be righteous. Instead, he transferred the debt. He transferred the debt. He affixed it to someone else's account. And the one to whom he affixed it is the one who is also nailed to that cross. The act of nailing it to the cross indicates the transfer. You see, in those days, the Romans had perfected the punishment of crucifixion. It was the most hideous way that they had to execute prisoners and those whom they deemed guilty. And above the dying man on the cross would be nailed the judgment. It was common. That's how they would pronounce to all onlookers because they would execute at a place that was publicly visible. They would nail above the head of the dying criminal. They'd nail the charges. This is what so-and-so has done and list them all out there. And the public walking by would be able to look at the hideous picture of a man dying on the cross, blood dripping down, all his skin that, that would be ripped apart by the flogging and you'd see the painful, the, the, the extortion of the face because of the pain as the man was dying on the cross. And you'd look above and say, okay, this is what he did. And that would serve as the message to all onlookers, don't you dare do this same thing or that's your fate. Paul takes that analogy. And he says, this is what happened. When Jesus was hung on the cross to die, it was really not the piece of paper that Pilate had nailed above his head. It was the piece of paper that God nailed to the cross above the head of Jesus. And that piece of paper was the certificate of our debt. The payment for our sins and our sinfulness was transferred to the account of the Holy Son of God who alone could pay that penalty. The idea is very clear. Paul is speaking here of imputation. This is so wonderfully communicated by the third stanza of Horatio Spafford's hymn, It is well with my soul. He phrases it in these words drawn from Colossians chapter 2, he says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Friends, this is where our indebtedness to the holy law of God ended. 
It ended at the cross. The payment was made, not just ignored, it was made, and it was made by the Son of God Himself, and justice was satisfied, and through that imputation, the one who is just could also be the justifier. And that is the beauty of the gospel alone. There is no other message, there is no other ideology, there is no other religion that has that beautiful message. And that is why Paul writes to these Colossians to give them the defense against all the ideologies creeping in from the world that, listen, we must stand fast and be captive to only to the tradition of Christ, only to the truth of Christ, because it is only in Christ and through what God has done through Him that we have the imputation of our sins to Him and full forgiveness imputed to us. There's one final question that Paul answers here in this text, verse 15. The question is this, what did God then do to our enemies? What did God do to our enemies? We saw what God did to us. Fundamentally, He made us alive. That was vivification. We saw what God did to our guilt. He imputed it to Christ. That's imputation. And now we're left with the question, what did God do to all the enemies? All the enemies of our souls. You see, there is a whole host of spiritual beings that have a vested interest in our humiliation. A whole host of of, of spiritual beings that have a vested interest in our damnation, in our condemnation. In, In seeing us as the image bearers of God spend eternity in hell. That's what they want. So what happened to those who would laugh over us and laugh in the face of God? The answer is found in verse 15. What did God do to our enemies? He made them a public display. Notice verse 15. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him that is Christ. Although this whole host of spiritual beings wanted our humiliation, God switches the tables. And now, in a word, what does God do to our enemies? Humiliation. He humiliates them. The verb here, the the key verb is found right in the middle of the sentence of verse 15. He made a public display of them. Now we so often think, That the public is the human public. We so often think that what matters most in this cosmos is what happens in our view. But that's not the case. What happens that is most important happens within the heavenly scene. That is the reality. And what what, what, what Paul explains, God through Paul explains to us, is that at the cross, when, when God does His saving work for us through Christ at the cross... He made all of our spiritual enemies a disgrace. All those who would laugh over us. He made them a spectacle. He disgraced them in public is the idea of that verb. And and that verb is then described in two ways. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. He disarmed them. Literally, he neutralized them. They once were our slave masters. In fact, when you go back to chapter 2, verse 8, he talks about 
not being held captive according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. And that phrase, elementary principles of the world, is probably better translated by the ESV, which says the elementary spirits of the world. Or you go back, for example, to to chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, Or actually, no, let me take you and say, we don't have time to go there, but look at verse 13 to 14. Verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. From the domain of darkness. From all of those, those slave masters that he describes as spiritual beings. Here, back in our text, verse 15 of chapter 2, Paul says that God neutralized them. He neutralized them. And then number two, not only did God neutralize them in Christ at the cross, but the second part of verse 15 goes on to say, having triumphed over them through Him, that is through Christ. Paul draws upon another analogy here. He uses uses terminology that would remind the Colossians of something that was very prevalent in in that day. You see, when Roman generals would go and march into, into rebellious territories, when they would conquer the city, They would take the soldiers who had been defeated, those who remained alive. The Roman generals would take those defeated soldiers, would strip them, take away all of their armor, take away all of their weapons, and then the general would march forward and these soldiers, in great humiliation, would be forced to march behind. And by that procedure, by that process, that processional, the Roman general would show to the world who was victorious. And Paul says here, this is what happened to your enemies, saints. To all those who would scoff at you and and would seek your humiliation and your disaster. This is what God did to them in Christ. He neutralized them. And now, He lords it over them. He leads them as it were. He triumphs over them and they are in shame. And understand this, dear saint. Your very existence as a redeemed son or daughter of God is a testimony to their humiliation. You once belonged to the domain of darkness. Now, You belong to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And those demons and spiritual beings are not the only ones who are in this processional. They themselves are humiliated. But we also, Paul says in Corinthians, we also march in that same processional. But we don't march as those who are humiliated. We march as the prize of the conquering general, as those whom He has redeemed. And He shows off to the world As his precious children. What did God do to us? Made us alive. What did God do to our guilt? He took it away and nailed it to the cross. What did God do to our enemies? He humiliated them. And that's why, as we come to our conclusion now, we really are left. Again, with that statement from Horatio Spafford from his hymn that is repeated in all the stanzas. 
It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. My final question to you would be, are you one of those who has been made alive, who has had the guilt removed and affixed to the cross of Christ, and one whose enemies have been humiliated by Christ? Are you one of the saints? If you are, as we sing this final song, sing it out with joy, it is well with my soul. But if you are not, that is the most pressing issue in your life right now. Nothing else. Your soul is not well, but it can be. By fleeing to Christ, that is your greatest need today. And Christ says, come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for what you have done for us. We who are not only guilty and worthy of damnation, righteously worthy of damnation. You have done what we could not do in that you've made us alive and taken all of this which we could not do and you have achieved it for your glory's sake and for us. And we give thanks to Jesus Christ, the one